Welcome to a long overdue installment of the Convivial Society. This time around, I'll be reflecting on the value of older perspectives on technology and society, mostly by considering some themes in the work of Jacques Ellul, in my view, one of the great 20th century social critics. I trust Ellul will be familiar to most of you, but if not, I hope this serves as an enticement to his work. In fact, as I explained to some friends recently, I'm perfectly happy being a mere gateway to the work of Elul and others like him who have enriched my own thinking. And remember, if you're listening in a podcast app, that the newsletter features a good deal more than the main essay which you are about to hear. Old Voices Shed New Light In case you've ever wondered, I don't exactly have a grand research project or even a clearly defined area of interest. You might, in fact, should I ever have occasion to bore you with the details, be surprised to learn just how haphazardly I stumbled into writing about technology. Several years ago now, I reflected a bit on the work of tech criticism, by which, of course, I meant not a reflexive hostility to technology, but rather the effort to think well about its meaning and consequences. The gist of it was that, generally speaking, the tech critic thinks and writes for the sake of something other than technology itself, whether that be, for example, the environment, the just society, or the good life. And this is as it should be. Technology is, after all, properly a means toward an end, and we get into trouble precisely when it becomes an end in itself. My writing, I suspect, probably reflects this rather unfocused interest in matters technological, cultural, and moral. Insofar as I have a thing, however, I'd say that it is an interest in exploring and applying the work of an older, now mostly forgotten tradition, loosely defined, of technology criticism. It's an effort I once called, and still occasionally refer to, as the recovery of the tech-critical canon. If it ever seems that I am saying something new or different, it is more likely the case that what I am saying is simply a variation on some older theme, and that it appears novel or original only to the degree that it has been forgotten or ignored. My explorations along these lines tend to alternate among different strands of this tradition. At times, the media ecological strand is top of mind, and the work of scholars like Marshall McLuhan, Walter Ong, and Neil Postman becomes more prominent in my thinking. If you've been reading the newsletter of late, for the better part of this year, really, you already know that my attention has more recently been mostly on the work of Yvonne Illich, one of the few critics to whom I'd attach the epithet radical, suggesting one who gets to the root of things. The names of others come readily to mind, Lewis Mumford and George Grant among the dead, and Albert Borgman, Wendell Berry, Carl Mitchum, and Langdon Winner among the living. Hannah Arendt, while not ordinarily thought of as a philosopher of technology, strictly speaking, has also served me well in this regard. Of late, I've had occasion to turn again to the work of Jacques Ellul, the 20th century French scholar, lay theologian, and sometime member of the French resistance during the Second World War. Ellul was honored as one of the righteous among the nations by the World Holocaust Remembrance Center for his labors on behalf of Jews fleeing the Nazi regime. While the homage to Illich's notion of conviviality is evident in the title of this newsletter, 
I also intended to evoke the title of Ellul's best-known work, The Technological Society. Of course, it is not that I think that Ellul, Illich, or any of the other individuals I've mentioned here were infallible in their judgments or that they foresaw all of the particular challenges we now face. But I do continue to be struck by the prescience of their analysis and the enduring relevance of their insights. I should add, of course, that I do highly value the work of contemporary writers, many of whom I read with considerable profit. The older critics, however, do have one decided advantage, and that is the advantage of not taking for granted the techno-social configuration that is more or less our default cultural setting, and which thus inevitably shapes our thinking about technology. To be clear, this is not necessarily a matter of their keen insight or clear vision. It is, in large measure, simply a matter of chronological vantage point. They came up in a different age, so their experiences allowed them to perceive aspects of the modern technological project that we are more likely to miss, if only because we have no similar point of contrast in our experience to illuminate the distinctive contours of our own age. What I'm suggesting, though, is that their work can become just such a point of contrast for us, at least, it has served that function for me, and I hope by extension for you as well. Many of their categories and frameworks remain useful, and they point us to alternative ways of being with technology. Hardly a day goes by in which I don't find occasion to deploy the work of one of these thinkers to make sense of present circumstances. As one example, while reading through Elul recently, I was reminded of his discussion of what he called technical humanism, and it caught my attention because of the recent discussions of both the documentary The Social Dilemma and the Center for Humane Technology, with which the film is associated. Several individuals connected with the center, former Google employee Tristan Harris most prominent among them, appear in the documentary about the social ills of social media. In my feeds, people responded to The Social Dilemma which came out in October, in much the same way that they responded to the center when it was first launched a few years back, which is to say, with more than a healthy dose of skepticism and frustration. As far as I can tell, a good bit of the frustration stemmed from the fact that the documentary, and to a similar degree the work of the center, ignored the labors of contemporary academics and activists who had been raising the alarm about social media companies long before the wayward technologists experienced their ostensible moral awakenings. Fair enough, I say. But then I immediately think about how Elul and company were likewise marginalized and even scorned, often by contemporary scholars, who were all too ready to dismiss their work. But this is merely a self-indulgent digression, back to what Elul had to say about technical humanism. Writing in The Technological Society, which was first published in 1954, Elul noted that the claims of the human being have thus come to assert themselves to a greater and greater degree in the development of techniques. This is known as humanizing the techniques. But Elul, who had up to that point in his book gone to great lengths to demonstrate how technique had thoroughly captured society, was not impressed. Elul defined technique as the totality of methods rationally arrived at and having absolute efficiency for a given stage of development 
in every field of human activity. Ellul understood that what mattered most about modern technology was not any one artifact or system, but rather a way of being in the world. This form of life, or fundamental disposition, precedes, sustains, and is reinforced by the material technological order. So, Ellul went on, if we seek the real reason for humanizing technology, we hear over and over again that there is something out of line in the technical system, an insupportable state of affairs for a technician. A remedy must be found. But, Elul invites us to ask, what is out of line? According to the usual superficial analysis, Elul answers, it is man that is amiss. The technician thereupon tackles the problem as he would any other, but he considers man only as an object of technique, and only to the degree that man interferes with the proper function of the technique. In other words, he continued, technique reveals its essential efficiency in discerning that man has a sentimental and moral side. These factors are, for technique, human and subjective. But if means can be found to act upon them, to rationalize them, and bring them into line, they need not be a technical drawback. Of course, man as such does not count. This humanizing of technology presumes the existing technosocial status quo and ultimately serves its interests. It only amounts to a recalibration of the person so that they may fit all the more seamlessly into the operations of the existing techno-economic order of things. That techno-economic order is itself rarely questioned. It is taken mostly for granted, the myth of inevitability covering a multitude of sins. I'm not sure we can say that contemporary proponents of humane technology reason precisely by this logic, but neither do I think that they avoid ending up in much the same place, practically speaking. Consider the proliferation of devices and apps, some of which the Center for Humane Technology promotes, which are designed to gather data about everything from our steps to our sleep habits in order to help us optimize, maximize, manage, or otherwise finally calibrate our bodies and our minds. The calibration becomes necessary because the rhythms and patterns of our industrialized and digitized world have proven to be inhospitable to human well-being, while nonetheless alleviating certain forms of suffering. One might say that while for many, although certainly not all, modern technological society has managed to supply various material needs, it has been less adept at meeting many of our non-material needs. And it would be a serious mistake to imagine that only our material needs mattered. So now the same techno-economic forces present themselves as the solution to the problems they have generated. In Elul's terms, the answer to the problems generated by technique is the application of ever more sophisticated and invasive techniques. The more general technological milieu is never challenged, and there's very little by way of a robust account of what human flourishing might look like, independent of the present technological milieu. Elul also has little time for the professional humanists who cheer on such solutions. This procedure suits the literati, moralists, and philosophers who are concerned about the human situation, he writes. Unfortunately, it is a historical fact that this shouting of humanism 
always comes after the technicians have intervened. For a true humanism, it ought to have occurred before. This is nothing more than the traditional psychological maneuver called rationalizing. It seems impossible to speak of a technical humanism, Ellul concluded after some further discussion of the matter. It was more likely, in his view, that human beings would simply be forced to adapt to the shape of the technological system. The whole stock of ideologies, feelings, principles, beliefs, etc., that people continue to carry around and which are derived from traditional situations, these, Ellul believed, would only be conceived as unfortunate idiosyncrasies to be eliminated so that the techno-economic system may operate ever more efficiently. It is necessary, and this is the ethical choice, to liquidate all such holdovers, he continued sarcastically, and to lead humanity to a perfect operational adaptation that will bring about the greatest possible benefit from the technique. Adaptation becomes a moral criterion. One is reminded here of how tech enthusiast Robert Scoble recently tweeted his thanks to a man killed in a Tesla accident a couple of years back, thanking him, that is, for his sacrifice, which, Scoble explained, helped improve the autopilot's functioning. The tweet now appears to have been deleted. Scoble, who recorded his video message while riding with his children in a Tesla by the site of the accident, got a fair amount of heat for it. It is possible to imagine someone making the case for the inevitable costs of technological progress in a less callous, if no less objectionable fashion, of course, and without also presuming to speak for the family of the victim. What struck me was the way Scoble spoke with almost religious fervor, as if technological progress was a transcendent value for which the sacrifice of a mere human life was an ultimately negligible price to pay. Indeed, one which the victim, unwitting as he no doubt was, ought to have been grateful to make. It was not enough, it would seem, to accept the tragedy. One must celebrate it. Later, in the midst of the backlash, he tweeted, Twitter is rough tonight, but I have sailed rougher seas. People never understand the future at first. One begins to imagine why Illich, when he was once asked to forecast the future, sharply replied, to hell with the future. It is a man-eating idol. Returning once more to Elul, later in a 1983 article about ethics and technology, he also recognized the problem which still plagues us, but that few seem to acknowledge. Those who call for ethical technology presume that human beings must create a good use for technique or impose ends on it, but are always neglecting to specify which human beings. Is the who not important? Elol asked. Is technique able to be mastered by just any passerby, every worker, some ordinary person? Is this person the politician, the public at large, the intellectual and technician, some collectivity, humanity as a whole. For the most part, politicians cannot grasp technique, and each specialist can understand an infinitesimal portion of the technical universe, just as each citizen only makes use of an infinitesimal piece of the technical apparatus. How could such a person possibly modify the whole? Needless to say, 
the situation has hardly improved on this score in the last 30 plus years. In fact, technological systems have become ever more complex and our governing institutions more dysfunctional. It's worth noting that Elul's work was often dismissed by later scholars precisely because it attempted to consider the whole, to speak about technological society, to make judgments about the total techno-social package. This approach was rejected in favor of granular analysis of technological development, which avoided sweeping claims about something as vague as the technological order. This makes a certain amount of sense and it has yielded valuable insights. But it came at the cost of missing the proverbial forest for the trees, ignoring larger patterns and cumulative effects. The contingencies evident at a micro level of analysis compound into culturally formative currents. The complete technological milieu has a total effect that is greater than its constituent parts just as the total effect of a work of fiction cannot be properly assessed merely by tabulating literary devices and figures of speech. And these effects include shifting assumptions, new habits and dispositions, the dissolving and reconstitution of the plausibility structures sustaining political values, the redrawing of the horizons of expectation and desire, restructurings of the social order, the reshaping of our imagination and a reorientation of our experience of the world, none of which will be apparent from a social history of the refrigerator, however interesting such a tale might be. Now, while readers of the technological society would be forgiven for assuming that Elul was overly fatalistic, providing neither a path forward nor any measure of hope, that was not exactly true. It's just that Elul intended for readers to engage the whole of his corpus over 40 books, and read his sociological works in dialectical tension with his theological reflections, in which Kierkegaard and the Swiss theologian Karl Barth loom large. One might even say that, in this expectation, Elul was, in fact, overly optimistic. In any case, he did make an argument for the value of freedom as it arises out of a condition of perceived necessity presented by contemporary technology. It was precisely against the background of necessity that freedom could exist. To one interviewer, he said, I would say two things to explain the tenor of my writings. I would say, along with Marx, that as long as men believe that things will resolve themselves, they will do nothing on their own. But when the situation appears to be absolutely deadlocked and tragic, then men will try to do something. Thus it is, Elul went on to explain, that I have written to describe things as they are and as they will continue to develop as long as man does nothing, as long as he does not intervene. In other words, if man rests passive in the face of technique, of the state, then these things will exist as I have described them. If man does decide to act, he doesn't have many possibilities of intervention, but some do continue to exist, and he can change the course of social evolution. Consequently, it's a kind of challenge that I pose to men. It's not a question of metaphysical fatalism. Seen in this light, Elul's work was an effort not simply to instruct, but also to provoke. 
and it is to provoke us toward the realization of a measure of freedom available only when we fully reckon with the reality that opposes it. I would only add this note in closing. We ought to understand freedom as having two dimensions, freedom from and freedom for. Too often we fail to consider that freedom is fully realized only when it is conceived not only as freedom from restraint, but also as a freedom to fulfill a deeper calling toward which freedom itself is but a penultimate means. The two are related, but not identical. What Alul would have us to see is that the modern technological order tends to promise the former while simultaneously eroding the latter.